So if you're not familiar with the term holy rollers, well, the way it began was um, back in the early 1900s, uh, the, there was the Azusa Street Revival. It was kind of like an influx of Pentecostal charismatic worship. And it became especially present and prevalent in congregations that were traditionally what we call Wesleyan or holiness congregations. And these were congregations where the people were very, very like, you know, suits and ties, very proper people. They, um, they obeyed all the rules. But then on Sunday, on Sunday, the, they would, during worship, spirit, the spirit would jump in and, and these people would just literally and roll on the floor like like speaking in tongues and they were they were like la, 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 and you praise god and they were and they were flopping around rolling around and so other protestant and catholic traditions saw this and they thought that it was a little bit over the top and so they they came up with the term holy roller to describe that now the the point of it was to say that hey you know Everyone has some place in their life where they've got to cut loose, right? And the Wesley and the Holiness people, uh, during the during the regular week, they they really were really they didn't do all the things that we associate with naughtiness. They were very good, nice, holy people. But then when they got to church, they let it all out. They went crazy. And over time, a holy roller began, began to be associated with, with people who, uh, maybe you've heard the term Bible thumpers, right? People who are very strict in the do's and don'ts of their faith. Which is odd uh, for our church. If you don't know, our church is what's called a grace church. We really, really emphasize and we really, really believe in grace. And what we think that means and by searching the scriptures and especially paying attention to the, the teaching of Jesus and Paul and John in the New Testament is we don't think that there's like this list of do's and don'ts that constitute the right kind of life. But if you don't have a list of do's and don'ts, it can actually be kind of difficult to know how to live. And, and if you don't have a list of do's and don'ts, then what about holiness, right? Like if, if there's just, if it, it's just a free for all, do we all just do what we want? Is that what holy living is? We just, you know, do, or is there some, does, does the Bible kind of construct for us a, a way of going about life that is pleasing to God, truly holy, and we'll see what that means, and yet doesn't you know, reduced to do this, don't do that. And so perhaps ironically, we're going to be in this series uh, primarily in Leviticus, a a book in the Old Testament that is compiled of a whole bunch of laws of holiness. Now, uh, grant, we, we grant up front that as, uh, as believers in Christ, we're not bound to any of these laws. These are not uh, laws that, that Christians must obey. Um, but we're going to see that they actually hold the keys to a life that is not governed by laws. And yet, at the same time, it's truly holy and truly good the way that God wants life to be. And so, with that in mind, let's, let's take a look at uh, the, the, this is a seminal text in the Old Testament about holiness. And it says here, Yahweh, um, just for the record, most of the time in this series, uh, where normally in the Bible it has Lord in all capital letters, I'm going to say Yahweh. And that's because... And the writers of the, the Bible, the, the Jewish editors of the Bible, they didn't like uh, saying the, the word Yahweh. They, they thought that there, that there was some con- concern over using God's personal name. And so instead they'd say Adonai or Lord. 
And so that's why that shows up in there. I'm just going to go ahead and say Yahweh. So Yahweh said to Moses, say to the whole community of the Israelites, you must be holy because I, Yahweh your God, am holy. What does that mean? Holy in the, in the Hebrew is kadosh, and probably everyone here has a sort of mental image of what holiness is. And we might even have a mental image of what we think God, God's holiness looks like. So for me, personally, when I hear that someone is like holy, like God's holy, I think of God as kind of like, like an old man on a mountain, very, very high up and away, and all in white, you know, dressed in white, long white beard, very pure, very, uh, you know, untouched by the world, unsullied by the world. That's kind of my image, and maybe similar to your image of when we say God is holy. And, and that's because maybe you've heard holiness means set apart or sacred, right? And so I imagine, you know, if I'm thinking in terms of church architecture, I imagine those Catholic cathedrals that are just gorgeous, beautiful monuments, and they're, they're high, and they're, and they're, they're off, and they're, they're, they're otherworldly. And then, if you ask me what a holy person is, I have a completely different image. And I like to think of holy people, in my mind, I associate this, maybe you do too, with the anti-James Bond. The anti-Bond. And I want you to take a look here at all of the reasons that James Bond is not holy. In the top left, James Bond has a gambling problem. James, well, it's not a problem because he always wins. But for most people, gambling is very dangerous because it turns out that you don't always win unless you're cheating. And if you're cheating, you get shot. And so the idea is gambling is... So when I think of a holy person, somebody who doesn't gamble, right? When I think of a holy person, uh, James Bond is a chain smoker. He rolls his own cigarettes, uh, classy, you know, in in, in the world, and, and very sophisticated. But I mean, smoking, that's bad. And I can't imagine a holy person that would smoke, right? Also, James Bond is known uh, for the martini. Um, That's his thing, shaken, not stirred. He drinks. James Bond is probably, I mean, based on watching the movies, he's he's a functioning alcoholic. I don't know how the guy, I don't know how that guy does anything. Like, there's no way anyone could shoot that many people that accurately on that kind of level of consumption. But whatever, it's a movie, that's, that's fine. And last but not least, James Bond, the bottom right, is a dancer. And the thing is, when James Bond is dancing, he's not dancing for the art of dancing. He's dancing seductively. James Bond has one thing on the mind, and it's not very holy. And so when I imagine a holy person, I imagine somebody who's straight-laced, right? Clean living, does a lot of those uh, cleanses, the 30-day cleanses that remove the toxins from your body by drinking prune juice, and what and lemons? There's a lot of lemon juice in those things, as I recall. I've never done one. I tried once, and I was like, nope, not going to work. This body needs its toxins. But did you notice this very strange disparity, then, between our notion of God's holiness and, and the human holiness? Right? When we think about God being holy, we think of him being, like, sacred and pure and far away and, 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 and up there and set apart. When we think about somebody who's holy here, we tend to think about somebody who's straight-laced, who's a good person. They pay their taxes. They, they wake up and, and go to the, their jobs. Right? There seems to be this, this very odd, you know, juxtaposition, this, this disparity between God's holiness and human holiness. Well, what, 
what do we do with that? How do we, how do we take that into account? Well, I wanted to show you this. Um, so the, the Bible actually tells us, if we look in context, when it kind of describes what kadosh or holiness means. And so I have a couple texts here that kind of set, give you context for the word holiness. And I hope that this will start to bring those two things together. So on the one hand, here's uh, from Habakkuk one uh, twelve: Are you not from old, O Yahweh, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? You shall not die. Do you hear that? My holy one, you shall not die. You are, are you not from old, O oh God? My holy one, you shall not die. Notice what uh, Habakkuk thinks makes God holy, or one of the things that makes God holy. It's that God doesn't die. And what is that? Is that something that's, in a way, it's set apart. In a way, it's sacred. But really, in our terminology, if you kind of strip the, the church language out of it, it just means that God is radically different than us. Right? That is a way of saying that God's set apart. God is set apart, but the way that God's set apart is he's radically different than we are. Yahweh is radically different. And one of the ways is that, is that God is everlasting. And if you're familiar with ancient history, and you know what, about ancient Hebrews and, and, the, and the world that they lived in, their gods, too, were not everlasting. Their gods had origins. Their gods could perish in combat. Their gods were very fickle. And so it not, not just is God different than us, but the fact that God is from everlasting and has no beginning and no end, that makes God radically different from the other gods of the world around us. Look at this next text. This is from First uh, Samuel. And this, this is the, the part of, of the story of the Ark of the Covenant where Indiana Jones gets the face-melting scene from. Uh, the people of Beth Shemesh, they've, they've captured the Ark of the Covenant uh, from from the people of Israel, and they open it. And then, like, everybody who looks inside and opens it gets wiped out. And so then, immediately, what they do is they put the, the, the top back on, because they're like, this is bad news. And this is what they say. They, the people of Beth Shemesh said, who can stand before Yahweh, this holy God, this Kadosh God? Where can he go that is away from here, us here? Like, we need to get this God away from us, is what they're saying. And in, 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 the, in what they do next, they return the ark to, the, to Israel because this God's super dangerous. This God is different than people and other gods because when you go to talk to this God, when you, when you come up to see this God and be with this God, you're putting your life in danger. No one can stand before this God. Very different than the other gods that they're familiar with and certainly different than the kings and, and the chiefs that they're familiar with. This God is radically different. And so if we strip kind of some of the, some of the associations, the churchy language out of what, what kadosh or holiness means, what it really comes down to is that God's nature and character are radically different than ours. And also the gods of the world around the Israelites. God's just not like them in a lot of different ways. And every single way in which God is not like us and not like other things that we chase after, in every single one of those ways, that's God's holiness. That's the first thing you're going God's holiness means being radically different from normal human beings and their gods. Now that helps solve part of the problem, okay? It, 
so we can see then that, that holiness is not something that, um, that, that it's different for God and it's going to be different for, for, for us. But we can say that there's some parts of God's holiness we can never attain in this life, God living forever and not being able to be stood, uh, stood up against. But presumably there are things about God that are different from the world around us, different from people that we can imitate, we can be a part of. And, and, and hope, and that has to be the case because if we look at our, go back to our original text, notice what it says. Yahweh said to Moses, say to the whole community of the Israelites, you must be holy because I, Yahweh your God, am holy. So if all of God's holiness is something that we can't approach or touch, then, then God's telling Moses and us something impossible, right? Well, that can't be the case. There must be some part of God's holiness that we can embody, that we can be a part of. And, and what that means then, probably, is, is that there's going to be something about us that's different. Right? Something about us that's not the same. Well, what does that mean? Um, one of the things that's funny, uh, so if you're familiar with uh, new atheism or the, the sort of evangelical atheism that goes on in the West right now, there's a lot of people who uh, like to make fun of the Bible uh, because the Bible has some very odd things in it. And one of the things that the new atheists love to do is they love to point out some of the absolutely ridiculous laws in the Old Testament. And, 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 and they think it's funny because they think that this is all just nonsense and, and whatnot. But, but I suggest to you, and I suggest to you that, that they're missing something really crucial here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull up one of their favorite texts. This is something that atheists love to show to Christians and be like, your holy book makes no sense. This is silly. This is literally from the very same chapter, Leviticus 19. Let's take a look at this. God says this to Israel, you must keep my rules. Do not crossbreed your livestock. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. And do not wear clothes made from two kinds of material. Right. So, okay, so if, um, I, you, I mean, I guess everyone who's watching, you're probably in your pajamas. But there's some people here who have come and they've, they've put on clothes. Uh, and thank God. And, and i I also have put on clothes. You'll notice, I mean, I don't know how much you can see, hopefully not too much because like after you get from here, once you go down, it starts to go out and it's not as pleasing to look at as this beautiful face. Uh, but you'll notice that if, if you were able to look down that I'm wearing denim jeans, I'm wearing denim. This shirt, however, is not made from denim. I don't know what it's made from because I don't know what things are made out of, but I know it's not jean material. So I am clearly in violation of the law in Leviticus 19, verse 19. And I suggest probably everybody here is too. And probably those of you at home, you know, if you've got your bathrobe on and you've got your uh, jammy bottoms, you're probably violating it too. What's wrong with you, you sinner? You guys seen the, the straw key? This thing is sweet. The straw key. Yeah, uh, people have known for a long time that if you if you do plant uh, different plants in the same field, occasionally you get uh, crossbreeding, you get hybrids. I don't think this one's natural. I don't think you can make straw key uh, without editing like gene sequences and stuff. Or is that what, is that a thing? Gene editing, something like the scientists invented this. Is what I'm, my point is. I don't know how you make a straw key, but the scientists did it. I don't think you can do it in the real world. But you'll notice here if you ate the straw key and you can eat it, you're getting the texture of the outside of a strawberry, but you're getting the flesh of a kiwi on the inside. 
violation, an abomination, a violation of Leviticus 19.19. What about Tigons and Ligers? Tigons and Ligers, anybody? I mean, for those of you who have sold yourselves a Tiger King on Netflix, I think they had one of these on here. Tigons are... uh, it's like a male tiger being mated with a female lion. That's a tigon on the left there. And then on the right is a liger. That is a male lion being mated with a female tigress. Now you have to be wondering, so, and this is what the atheists do. They laugh. They're like, ha, ha, ha. oh, Christians. Who cares? I mean, the only reason that people get upset about tigons and ligers and bear wolves, oh my, is that they, they, they have an issue with the way that they're bred and the captivity and stuff. But the idea that putting a tiger and a lion together, I mean, maybe that happens in the wild. Who knows? But there, there can't be anything naturally wrong with that, right? Like, who cares? Why is God so stressed about straw keys and ligons and denim jeans with a cotton shirt? Well, what uh, the atheists don't recognize is that, you know, in the culture of the ancient Near East, uh, these were all signs of of people who had multiple gods. Um, people who, who the, the idea so in the ancient world, the the smart play, just like it is in the in the in, in our world, is to diversify your portfolio. Diversifying your portfolio is to protect you from the vagaries of the market. And if you need more help with that, you can talk to Scott. He played bass today. He will protect, he, he will protect your investments from the market. Cause that's what he's, a, cause he's a genius and he can do that. He has power. Okay. So the idea is you don't want to put all of your, what is it, Scott? All of your eggs and don't chickens in one basket. What's the name? Don't play chicken with your nest egg. Purchase it on amazon.com for 99 cents. Change your life. <laughs> don't don't put all of your chickens in your nest egg, whatever. Uh, meaning, don't like go all in here because if you go all in here and this goes bad, you're in trouble. And ancient peoples understood that with their gods too, and so they wouldn't. It, the ancient peoples were like they would get a lot of good gods and kind of work together with all of them, and then that would be like a way to hedge their bets in case any one of those gods wasn't paying attention or wasn't you know particularly strong that week, whatever. That's how the ancient people protected themselves. And so they began to see syncretism, the combining, the working together of things that uh, were different as, as a symbol of that. And so having, you know, different types of material on your body was, a, was signified being, you know, loyal to multiple deities. That's not how God operates. Yahweh, consistently throughout the Old and New Testament, is depicted as a God who is fiercely and jealously committed. There, there's books of the Bible, that, like, uh, like Hosea, for example, where God is depicted as a husband, of a, a, a jilted husband, a cuckold, meaning that God had married Israel. God had gone all in on Israel. 
God had said, I am, I, I will never quit you. I will never forsake you. No matter how bad things get, I will not end this union. I am all in for you. And there's nobody else. You're my one and only. And through you, all of the other peoples of the world are going to come to me, but you're my girl. That's who I am. And, and because I'm like that, I want you to be the same way. I want you to be a, a, a one-man woman. Just as I'm a one-woman God, I want you to be a one-God woman. I want us to be it and nobody else. That's a part of the way I'm different. Every other God out there understands that the other gods are involved. Everybody else who, who lives in the world understands they've got to diver- diversify their portfolio. That's how the world operates. That's how lesser deities operate. That's not how I operate. And I don't want you to be like them. I want you to be like me. And if you think about that, what that means is that the Old Testament laws are not silly, like, oh, some random person from the ancient world just threw some stuff out there and, and we can all laugh at it. No, if you understand it and you see it, you recognize that these are an expression of God's eternal nature and character. And so by studying them, by being with them, even the weird ones, we can start to see who God is, what God is like, and that means we understand his holiness. We see the way that Yahweh is radically different in so many different facets. And so even though we're, you know, freed from the law, we don't have to, we can wear jeans, we can make ligers, even though that stuff's all on the table, and we can eat straw keys, we can still understand Leviticus 19.19 as an expression of the eternal Godhead, and can show us ways, thought processes, habits, and dispositions in and through which we can become holy. And that's the next thing you're no sheets. Holiness laws reveal God's radically different character. The fact of the matter is the God who gave the Levitical holiness laws to Israel is the same God who's the same father of Jesus Christ, the same triune God from beginning to end, Old and New Testament, one being, one holy, perfect, righteous creator who, who gives in different ways at different times ways for us to understand and know God. And so it's okay for us and, and good for us to delve into things that might be very foreign and very strange because they're going to reveal to us who God is and what God's like. Now, if you're following uh, the way that the Torah works, right? Uh, Exodus, or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Those, those first five books of the Bible up to Joshua is it's the Israelites getting ready to go into the promised land. And so God gives them all of these different commands and words and instructions so that they'll know who God is and to prepare them for entering a world where nobody knows who God is. And the reason God does this, it's, uh, it's in Deuteronomy, so let's uh, take a look at this text. When you enter the land Yahweh your God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable or abominable ways of the nations there. Do not imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. The people are about to move into a world that is, um, well, it's governed by unholiness. There's nothing holy about this place. It's a place where everything is anti-God. 
It's every, there are no rules, and what rules there are are sick and twisted. It's a world of child sacrifice. It's a world of ritualized prostitution. It's a world that is deeply, deeply infected, and it is deeply, deeply sick. And yet God is saying, I'm I'm sending you in. So you hold on to what I give you, because if you don't, things could get bad. In fact, there's two ways that things could go bad. There's the, uh, there's the Last Samurai way and the Lost in Translation way. So let's take a look here. Uh, in the early 2000s, once every 20 years, Americans become obsessed with Japan for like a five-year period. So it happened in the 1980s uh, when Japan was taking over the, the economy of the world. It happened again in the early 2000s. Um, and, and these two movies were sort of signify this. So I think we're actually pretty much due. I think it's time for another... It's time, it's time to get stoked about Tokyo again. Maybe, maybe after the coronavirus, we can get pumped about Japan again. At any rate, so 20 years ago-ish, uh, these two movies came out, Lost in Translation and Last Samurai. Last Samurai on the right is basically a remake of Dances with Wolves, Kevin Costner. Only instead of going to the Native Americans, the indigenous peoples, uh, Tom Cruise, the, uh, he's, an, he's an alcoholic, broken down Civil War veteran, and he goes to Japan... And in Japan, he gets captured by uh, people who are living in traditional ways of the Japanese, and he finds peace and comfort and, and healing for his soul uh, by, by becoming like them. He basically assimilates to their culture. He, he just goes all in, becomes Japanese. He's turning Japanese. I think he's turning Japanese. On the left there is Lost in Translation. This is uh, Bill Murray. Bill Murray plays a, uh, a washed-up American actor. Ha ha, great casting. Sofia Coppola, you're a real card. Um, and and he, he's invited to Japan to, to, I think, film some commercials or something like that. And, and the entire movie is fascinating for the way that it, it portrays him as utterly disconnected. Like, there is no connection that Bill Murray feels to anyone in the culture. I mean, even just look at that shot, right? He's sitting there. This is one of the most, it's one of the most populated, densely crowded uh, cities on earth. And yet, no matter how many people are there, he's totally alone. He's completely separate. They have extended scenes where, where he doesn't speak any of the language and people are just talking to him uh, and he has no idea what they're saying and he's running around. And, and wherever he goes, he, he's just completely separate, totally different, just no connection. Well, if you think about it, the, the last samurai is what God just warned Israel about. If, if you could go in and you could go native, right? You could end up becoming just like those people. Right? There'd be no difference between you and them. And as holy as I am, there'd be, no, there'd be a radical difference between you and me. Because you wouldn't be like me anymore. There's another concern, though. There's a, a concern that God has. God's hoping, God's desiring that the Israelites' holiness, being like him, being radically different, is going to draw the nations to God. So it's also possible that what the Israelites might do is they might get so fixated on the, the letter of the law, like... Do not wear denim and cotton together. Is, I don't even, is cotton made out of, or denim made out of cotton? Does, what is denim made out of? Is it cotton? What's something that's not cotton? Nylon. I don't think they had nylon in the ancient world, but okay. Polyester, I don't think they had that either. What, the point is, like, I, I apologize for even asking. Spandex. Wool! There it is! That's what we needed. Yes! Cotton and wool. 
Are those? I don't know. Yes, they're different. All right. They're probably different. Cotton and wool. They're like, I, 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 they, they could be so fixated on like separating the cotton from the wool. And making sure that there's no ligers anywhere. And making sure that it's only wheat in the field. They could get so fixated on that that they just have no contact whatsoever with the people around them. And the people around them would be like, uh, what is wrong with you? Why, why are you like, the cotton thing, it's really freaking me out. Obsessive compulsive, it's a disorder, not something you should be proud of. This is nuts. And by various turns, if you know the story of Israel, Israel does both, right? Sometimes Israel totally assimilates to the culture and forgets to be anything like this radically different God. At other times, Israel becomes so fixated on being radically different and focusing on the rules and the, and the do's and don'ts that the people around them are just mystified and frankly upset and, and horrified by them. And over the course of uh, the next five weeks, we're going we're gonna to be kind of in the 21st century kind of adapting and seeing how these laws reveal God's character. And we're going to be thinking critically about the ways that we can thread that needle, that we can walk the line, as Johnny Cash once said, to, to go in between these two extremes, the last samurai, the lost in translation, to be somehow, uh, it, you know, around, but not of. And, and that, that leads to the last thing in our note sheets. Real holy rollers, the real rollers, live amidst and apart from the world. We're going to be seeing, we're going to be seeing how God himself, God's holiness, God lives in the midst and yet apart from the world. God calls us to live in the midst and yet apart from the world. And, and it doesn't have to be, and it really isn't supposed to be something that's, that's like disgusting or horrifying to the world, although that can happen depending on um, where the world is, but it doesn't have to be uh, those things. Instead, it can just be uh, ways that we're reflecting a character and, and habits and dispositions that Yahweh has that the, it never occurs to the world to have. And yet it also means that we won't be so radically different from the world that, you know, we're walking down the street and everyone's like, Christian, Christian, I can tell. I do think that, you know, there's, there's danger in being so sectarian, so separate, uh, that we, we just repel the world around us. And so we're going to be exploring this, this true notion of holiness, this holiness that, yes, is radically de- different, but, yes, is also totally present and imminent in the world's experience. We're going to be looking at a way where we really can live life that's exciting and attractive and draws people in, and yet, and yet make some very clear distinctions between what the way we operate and the way that they operate until they decide to join up and to believe And what's really cool is we're going to see all of that through the lens of Levitical holiness laws, laws from 3,000 years ago that nomads and peasants and petty kings obeyed, or in many cases disobeyed. And when we're done, in, in, in five more weeks, when we finish this, I think we are going to know what it looks like in the 21st century. Because right now, you know, we're all hunkered down. Right now, I mean, holy or not, it, we, no one knows 
how you operate. The only thing that people know is whether or not you're wearing a mask when you leave the house. That's the only thing they know about you. But when the end of this comes, when we reintegrate, reinsert, I think we're going to have a really clear picture of what a holy Christian looks like. And I promise you, it's not the anti-James Bond. And it's also not someone who's totally indistinct from the people in the world. And it's also not someone who's miserable and, and crushed by all these rules and regulations that they have to live. It's none of those things. Instead, it's going to be a picture of the kind of life that God in God's self lives and desires us to live. And so I hope you'll join us as we do that these next several weeks. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we confess that you're holy. That everything about you is just radically different. Radically different than what we see uh, on TV and what we uh, see in, in the lives of the world around us. Even what we see, honestly, God, in our own lives. And yet, God, we confess and we believe that you've revealed that to us and you've shown us what it looks like and you're inviting us to take part. That you're inviting us to be in the middle of the world and yet apart from it. That you're inviting us into a radically different but radically real and human and good and robust way of living. A way of living that's not swayed by the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. A way that is in keeping with your word and relying fully on you. God, encourage our hearts. Encourage us as we miss being with each other. Encourage us as we miss being able to to do the things that we love. Encourage us as we worry about economies and jobs, provision. Encourage us and let us know that you're with us, that you're not giving up on us. You never quit. Though we change and though the world changes, you don't. That you're the one who has us in your hands and that you're drawing us to live the way you live. We pray these things in the name of Jesus whose blood makes all of it possible and whose spirit enlivens us and gives us power. Amen.